Good evening, everybody. My name is Trey Grayson. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. I want to welcome everybody to the Harvard Kennedy School and to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum for tonight's discussion on uh, the new pope and what changes that may bring. Uh, tonight's discussion is going to be moderated uh, by Melinda Henneberger, who is a fellow at the Joan Shorenstein Center on Press Politics and Public Policy. She's a political writer for the Washington Post and writes the She the People blog uh, and was also the founder and editor-in-chief of Politics Daily and worked for a number of other publications. Please join me in welcoming Melinda to the forum. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here to talk about our pre-Easter surprise, Pope Francis, and to introduce our great panelists. Uh, Father Brian Hare is surely the only person who is employed by both the Archdiocese of Boston and the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, where he's the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Religion and Public Life. He's also been President of Catholic Charities USA and Counselor at Catholic Relief Services. For almost two decades, he taught at Georgetown University, and I feel very fortunate to be sitting in on his class this semester on the politics and ethics of war. Uh, Mary Jo Bain is the Thornton Bradshaw Professor of Public Policy, also here at the Kennedy School, uh, was the top advisor on welfare to President Clinton, and does what so few public servants do, which is resign on principle, uh, when the president signed the uh, aversion of the welfare reform bill that she strongly opposed. And you may remember that the American bishops opposed that version of reform as well. She was also the commissioner of the New York State Department of Social Services, has written extensively about poverty, education, and the role of religion in social welfare, and she was a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia. Uh, John Carr, who was a fellow here at the Institute of Politics last semester, was a longtime advisor to the U.S. bishops. And when he left that job last fall, one of my colleagues at the Washington Post wrote, for the past quarter century, Carr has been the most important policy advisor to the country's Catholic bishops. Their Carl Rove on everything from health care to clergy sex abuse. When the Hill's top poverty advocates were desperate during last year's budget talks to save assistance programs for the poor, Carr led the effort. He'll soon be leading an initiative on Catholic social thought and public life at Georgetown University. So there have already been so many surprises in a short time from our new pope, everything from refusing to move into the Apostolic Palace to spending uh, Holy Thursday with young convicts and where he washed the, and kissed the feet of the convicts, including a couple of young women, despite the fact that that had always been a no-no under, under canon law. So moving forward, if you could just say, uh, just go down the line and say, what your biggest surprise has been so far, and what you most, what surprise you still most hope for uh, in this new pontificate? Well, I, I think uh, the biggest surprise is the way he has been able to focus the attention of the world on this office. Uh, he uh, obviously has done a series of things, but what 
really has happened, I think, is that they have kind of come together to focus attention on the office and how he will fill it. Um, it here at Kennedy School, I think we teach all the time that in major positions like this, the person shapes the office and the office shapes the person. And I think he has begun to shape the office by what everybody has decided to call a new style. Now, style only takes you so far, but it can take you a long way if you're trying to at least raise the question of the reasonableness of faith in a world where many do not find it reasonable. The relevance of faith in a world in which people wonder about what faith offers has the capacity to impact public life and public affairs. So I think the biggest surprise has been that. The question about what you expect, uh, I think in my mind is hard to judge at the present time. Unlike other popes of my lifetime, and I go back a long time, unfortunately, <laughs> other popes of my lifetime have had more of a reputation when they came into the office. They'd written a lot of books, they did a lot of diplomacy, he comes kind of silently and quietly, focuses attention, so I'm not sure what to expect. What's your wildest hope, though, in this <laughs> My wildest hope? Uh, I guess my wildest hope would be that the uh, kind of uh, image he has projected about care for the vulnerable, uh, support for the poor, and at the same time, a deeply religious capacity to speak about faith in a world that is secular in many ways. My wildest hope is that he can make faith make sense and be attractive for people's lives. Okay. So I guess I'd uh, describe myself as a progressive Catholic and um, I was pleasantly surprised, though I didn't have wildly high hopes, I have to admit. Uh, for the for the choice of a pope, uh, but when I heard that the pope was a Jesuit who had taken the name of Francis, uh, I said, "Well, uh, the intellectual tradition of the Jesuits and the tradition of compassion and care for the poor of Francis, if those two things actually come together, it would be terrific." Now, of course, it could be vice versa, but um, we won't uh, we won't try to think about. We won't try to think about that. But certainly the things he's done the first couple of weeks uh, in terms of the, the style that he has projected and the, the statements that he has made and, and so on indicate that he does want to bring a kind of different image to the, uh, uh, to the church and, a, and an image that, that is more of a servant church and a church that genuinely cares for the, for the poor. And I think that would be, that would be terrific. I guess, uh, I guess my hopes are at, at kind of two different levels. I mean, one is at the, at the level of the institution of the church. I mean, I think I would say that uh, over the last uh, period, uh, there have been uh, some things in the church that leave us kind of embarrassed, frankly. Uh, the way the abuse scandal has happened, going after the nuns. I mean, so I hope that at the level of the church, uh, he will bring about some genuine reforms, uh, that, the, that the management of the church will become more inclusive, that it will become more transparent, 
uh, that it will be an institution uh, that we can that we can be prouder of. But I think I have my greatest hopes for a stance in the world, and I think in this sense I'm I'm uh, something like Brian. Uh, that is that if the Pope can restore uh, some of the moral authority of the Church through uh, the way he presents the church and in, and in doing some of the cleaning up, then he really can be a strong voice for the poor and the vulnerable on a world stage. And that can make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be my hope for him. Okay. John? Well, it's great to be back at Harvard. I'm uh, very glad I was part of the fall semester, not the spring semester. I missed all the snow. Uh, I would say I think it's been stunning. If I left this place in December, and if I had walked into a publisher's office and said, I have an idea for a book. Uh, chapter one is Pope Benedict says, you know what? This is more than I think I'm up to. I'm going to resign. First pope in 600 years. We need a younger person to do this. And then the second chapter would be we'd find an old Jesuit in Buenos Aires who's on the bus. Uh, going to and from work in his apartment. And then the third chapter would be about the conclave, where uh, the big names that we'd all heard about uh, fail, fall by the wayside, and they end up with this first Jesuit, first Latin American, uh, as pope, and his, the guy sitting next to him in the conclave leans over when the votes assemble and say, uh, gives him a hug and a kiss and says, don't forget the poor. And he says, you know what? I ought to be called Francis. Francis was the uh, uh, saint for the poor, saint for peace, and saint for creation. And then instead of, you know, hopping in the limousine, he rides back to dinner with the guys on the bus. They toast him. He toasts them and says, may God forgive you for what you've done. And he decides that he better go pay his bill at the hotel, get his bag, and then that he's going to celebrate Holy Thursday, uh, not at some fancy basilica washing the feet of Monsignors, but at a juvenile detention center washing the feet of young people, including young women and Muslims. If that were my book proposal, uh, the publisher would say, get out of my office. That's just completely unrealistic. And what I would suggest, my greatest hope is that the rest of the book will be as surprising and as interesting as this will be. The, the fondest hope uh, I would have is that both the church and our society would look beyond our obsessive concerns with matters of human sexuality, it's a very important part of our lives, to see the larger vision of our faith and our lives. For most people in the world, the question is not, should gay people be allowed to marry? It is, will we be able to feed our children? And this is a pope, I think, who is going to devote a lot of energy to the second question. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed to me, watching this conclave and having covered the last one in Rome, a striking difference was Eight years ago, at the conclave uh, where Benedict was chosen, any talk about reform was really rebuffed. 
any talk about reform was seen as um, coming from enemies of the church, was really rejected um, as incorrect. At this conclave, you had the cardinals themselves talking about the need for, for reform, talking about the need for change, talking about things like, you know, the obvious need, and that was what they were saying, not what critics were saying, for reform of the Curia, reform of the Vatican Bank, uh, you know, an end to the kind of dysfunction of the government of the Vatican, and also a new emphasis, I think, on finally, once and for all, we hope, dealing with, um, you know, the sex scandals that really have dogged the church for such a long time. So on those two fronts, you know, reform can mean lots of things to lots to different people. What do you see in specific terms as what's most likely to happen on those two fronts? Well, I think as you look at his challenges, uh, I think he's got three major challenges. One, the way his own personal faith, his understanding of faith, and his projection of the meaning of faith really does speak intelligibly and inspiringly to people. That's what he needs to do as Pope. Second challenge is governance. Uh, if he cannot put in place the right kind of structure to the reason why everybody's talking about reform is what Mary Jo said. We've had a sexual abuse crisis that's worldwide. We secondly have had stories that the governance of the Vatican is uh, at Kennedy School, it would get an F. You know, so I mean that's the bottom line. Now maybe maybe we're a little tough, but the fact is that it would just get an F. The 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 key appointment, and you and I have talked about this, the key appointment that he's got to make is Secretary of State. We think of Secretary of State as dealing with foreign policy. That's not what it means in the Vatican. In the Vatican, the Secretary of State is like a prime minister of a European government. The Pope cannot reform the Vatican. If he gets into that bureaucratic maze, he will never be able to speak intelligibly about faith. So he's got to appoint someone who can restructure that place and leave him free to be the kind of teacher and voice for the poor and voice for human rights that he needs to be. The third thing is he's got to have in both message and structure, a credible uh, case that he can make that he is putting the sexual abuse question behind the church, behind it meaning finishing it. And those are the three crises that I think he has to face. Mm -hmm. And people talk about reform because we have to have it. It mm -hmm. gets in the way of everything else we do. I really don't have much to add to that. It's been pretty bad. Uh, so uh, even the cardinals recognized uh, that it's been bad and that they really have to uh, pay attention to it. And I think Brian has got the challenges just right, that, that, uh, the things that, that have to happen. I, I would emphasize the, um, you know, the issue of, of more transparency uh, and more collegiality in the governance of the church. So it's not just a matter of uh, opening the books and you know, kind of making sure that the money is accounted for. I think it is also a matter of recognizing. I mean, this is a billion-person operation. I mean, this is a this is a, a big operation, 
and you can't do it alone. And so to have a more collegial governance structure that uh, involves certainly the bishops, um, but even better would be if it involved uh, lay people in various, uh, in various places and, and uh, a more diverse set of people running the Vatican, I think that would be all to the good. Mm -hmm. Seems to me even Benedict was very obviously um, you know, coming out and saying, you know, both voting with his feet and saying very obviously that things had to change. And that was part of his decision to leave, that reform was so needed and that, you know, he didn't feel it was going to happen as long as he was there. It doesn't work. I mean, the old joke was uh, they said, uh, they asked uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, how many people work at the Vatican? And his answer was about half. And that may have been a high estimate. Uh, this is an outfit that takes summers off, that has a siesta every day. It's not only the big things that matter, it's the little things, like can you get the mail answered? Can dispensations be granted? If a priest has violated his uh, responsibilities, can you get him not to be a priest quickly, clearly, finally, without 100 appeals? It seems to me, in, uh, I followed Brian in my job. If you ever think you have a hard assignment, try that one. And he always speaks in threes. But I would think uh, symbols are substance in the Catholic Church. Uh, this has been sort of organizational liturgy. And so uh, what he wears, where he sleeps, uh, how he rides, uh, travels, uh, how he refers to himself, I think that is, in real ways, policy. When he calls himself the Bishop of Rome, when he rides back to the hotel that he's going to stay at and eat at uh, with his brother bishops, that's telling them in ways that more clear than any encyclical ever will that uh, he sees his role as a different role. When he talks to other religious leaders as a brother instead of superior, that the second, and this is Brian and, and Mary Jo's point, Personnel is policy, and they've talked about the decisions about who's in, who's in the curia. 36 cardinals are in the curia. Uh, I, I am not completely sold that the Vatican is much worse than the U.S. Congress or well. the, the financial <laughs> meltdown. Why don't you raise the bar? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the IOP is better run, I'll give you that, but uh, the... Uh, I think we have a crisis of leadership throughout our society in the Vatican order. The most important decisions the Pope makes is not who's in the Vatican Council for the Family. It's who is the Bishop of Green Bay and Boston and Buenos Aires and Paris and Johannesburg. If he chooses people with his priorities, with his commitment to renewal, with his words of mercy and forgiveness, with his passion for the poor, will be a different church. And I think it'll give hope to a lot of people who have never heard about the Curia, but see in their local church a church that lives out the gospel. And I think, I hope that's where we're headed. What you said about how symbol and sign in the Catholic Church really is policy is so true. 
So when, when you're talking about something like we were talking about early, his simple dress, I mean, just something like rejecting the lace and the frills and, and the story from, I'm sure you guys uh, know, followed John Allen's work in the National Catholic Reporter. He was reporting uh, running into a prelate in Rome who was usually, you know, dressed in full regalia. So he run in, runs into this guy and he barely recognizes him because he's in his simple black cassock. And so John says, what is this? And he says, simple is the new chic. <laughs> so what, what is that gonna translate into, do you think, John, in the, in the what's the policy? Uh, One of the most powerful things I've read, and everyone is now an expert on the Pope. Everybody saw it coming. It's a little like your bracket. Everybody saw Florida Gulf Coast, you know, getting to the group of 16. I admit I didn't see him coming at all. It is amazing watching people turn themselves into pretzels to pretend that he's really their choice and going to reflect their agenda. The, uh, the, the way in which he lives out his vocation, I think shapes how all the rest of us see this in that if the, the leadership of the church is to serve instead of be served, it sort of tips things upside down. The most powerful thing I heard the Pope, uh, or read that the Pope said, and he said this to all the cardinals before he was elected, so this is really important. He said, a church turned in on itself, a church that is self-reverential, uh, was his word, is a sick church. And then in another context, he said, I'd rather be a part of the church in the streets that makes mistakes than a church turned in on itself, revering its own life. That is a powerful challenge to the church, which is very much tempted to turn on, on, on itself. I think there are two kinds of, kinds of leadership. One is if you think we've lost on questions of life and justice and peace and family, then, then the task is to preserve and protect. Uh, and sometimes it feels that way. If you think we can prevail on these important issues, then the task is to engage and persuade. And I think Pope Francis, like his namesake, is in, going to be in the streets, is going to engage and persuade. Mark Shields says of political parties, uh, you can tell a party that's uh, thriving by whether it's looking for converts rather than heretics. I would suggest that's even more true of a church. Are we looking for converts or are we looking for heretics? I was very interested in the Pope's uh, Easter Vigil homily uh, when he kept coming back again and again to the image of the women disciples of Christ who go out and are first to find that the tomb is empty and are first to witness the resurrection. And obviously this is not a news story, on the contrary, it's right there in the gospel, but his emphasis coming back again and again to, and actually saying, I wanna to return to the women, I wanna to return to the witness of these women. When you put that together with, you know, the washing of these young women's feet, kissing their feet, with some statements from other cardinals that uh, we really do need to look at expanding the role of women. I just wonder if each of you could say how you think that might translate in the real world. Slowly. 
at least in the church, my guess is it will be slowly. I mean, I personally think that the expansion of the Catholic priesthood to uh, married people and to women will happen. I think it will happen because it's a necessity, and I think it also has the advantage of being the right thing to do. Uh, but I'm not sure it'll happen in my lifetime. Uh, uh, because the church changes slowly, and there's been a lot of you know kind of digging in heels on on this one. I think what we very well might see, though, uh, in my lifetime, uh, and indeed uh, more recently, is is the gradual expansion of the roles of women in the church. Um, I mentioned earlier bringing women into the administration of the church in, in the Vatican would, of course, mirror what happens in every diocese in America. Mm. Uh, uh, women turn out to be good administrators uh, in many cases, and uh, it's not surprising. Uh, washing the feet of women as part of the Holy Thursday ritual has, of course, been going on for, I don't know, 15 years uh, in most parishes. So. Uh, it's nice that the Vatican is 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 catching up. But I, as I say, I guess I would I, I would expect actually an expansion of the uh, roles of women in administrative position, uh, perhaps an expansion of the diaconate to women. Uh, that wouldn't be such a stretch for people. Uh, but I think that uh, partly because of necessity. I mean, how are you going to staff all these parishes? Uh, how are you going to how are you going to do the things that the church needs to do in the in the world if you limit your staffing to um, uh, to celibate males? Uh, it's it's something that simply has to be dealt with. So, uh, I, it seems to me that those things, although not at all radical, could signal uh, uh, an expansion of the of the role of women in the church. And I would certainly like to see that. My guess is, I mean, the title of the panel is, Does This Mean Change? Uh, again, I think it's a three-level question. Mm -hmm. There's no question there's a change in style. He yep. will do the office differently. And again, I go back to the point that whether you're talking about the President of the United States or the Pope of the Church or the Secretary General or the European Common Market, the person shapes the position and the position shapes the person. So he's got a different style. He will change the image of what the role is up to a point. I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna throw away the the, the role of Peter, but he's gonna change it. Secondly, in social policy, I think his convictions about the obligation, the absolute obligation of the church to be at the service of the poor the absolute obligation of the church to be a voice for social justice and for peace, I think you can expect a body of teaching that will flow from that, that will build on previous popes, but will have his own style. So I expect change on both of those. If you ask about the core internal doctrinal questions in the church, I don't think there's anything in his record that would indicate that there's going to be change on that front. I think he's been known as theologically conservative and socially very liberal and pastorally very, very effective. So my sense is that now, there are whole other areas. First of all, there's what Mary Jo talked about. 
I said core doctrinal principles. She talked about a whole series of changes. You don't have to change any doctrine at all. You just change practice. And I think he may well do that. I think he's got a sense that it's better to negotiate than to fight. It's better, it's to, better to change what you can. So that's one. I think the second thing is he's got a major task on his hands uh, in looking at the relationship of Catholicism and Islam. Mm -hmm. Now that has something to do with religious conviction, it has a great deal to do with public policy, and it has a lot to do with peace in the world. Catholicism and Islam meet in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, and most importantly, from the perspective of peace among the faith, in Africa. The two fastest growing religious communities in Africa are Catholics and Muslims. And John Paul II understood that and put a lot of time into reaching out to the Islamic community. I think this man will do that. The other thing is there are two papal trips that haven't been made, and we need both of them. The world needs both of them. That's the one to China and the one to Russia. And John Paul II, because he was so political, could never get into either of those places. They took a look at Poland and said, we don't need that. And therefore, he, as less political, as more a kind of servant pope, my guess is that he's got a chance to make at least one of those trips. And the more important one would probably be China. Mm -hmm. so. In terms of what he could do, uh, just back briefly to the, to the role of women without changing anything in terms of doctrine, I've heard some very conservative Catholic thinkers point out that it would be more of a tweak than a revolution to do something like have women cardinals, given that, the, you know, yes, that's in yep. canon law, yeah. but so was the timing of the conclave that that was changed with, without any big fuss. So John, do you think that's something uh, that's possible or? <laughs> uh, th there are rumors that uh, John Paul II approached Mother Teresa and asked if she would consider being a cardinal and she turned him down. Uh, I thought it wasn't appropriate. It might have been a step down for Mother <laughs> Teresa. Uh, the, I'm the father of two girls and I'm married to Linda, who some of you know. Uh, they find all this symbolism fascinating and encouraging, and they still point out that this is an old guy elected by old guys. And the question is, what about the rest of the world? And my own sense is that one of the things that is likely to happen, or could happen, is if you lift up the priority of the church's ministries to those in need, the poor, the vulnerable, the homeless, the sick, poor kids in school, you are lifting up the very ministries that are led by women. And mm -hmm. if you say the work of the church is not only what is done at the altar, but what is done in the shelter, by what is done in uh, uh, the hospital, then you begin to diversify the leadership of the church in a very significant way. We'll still have lots of debates and discussions about how this is going to happen, but it was, in fact, Benedict who said that there are three things which make the church the church. Proclaiming the gospel, celebrating the sacraments, and 
caring for the poor and standing with the poor. In celebrating the sacraments, there are rules that prohibit that. And I think the assessment here is accurate. That's not likely to change. But in terms of proclaiming the gospel and caring for those in need, there is nothing that restricts that kind of leadership to men. Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, policy on the poor, on the global level, Mary Jo, what would you see? You know, we often say, what difference does it really make what goes in on in Rome, what they say in Rome, in, you know, to the rest of the world, and especially outside uh, the Catholic world? So on a policy level, how would that could that translate on, on the poverty issue? Well, I think it is more likely to translate uh, in, a, in, in the way people think and, and feel. I mean, I, am, I kind of think about how does style translate into, into actions. And, and you think about uh, the things that the Pope has already done in, in terms of his, the way he wants to live himself and the example he's setting for his cardinals. And presumably, it will be an example that will be set in other places. And if it becomes uh, kind of part of the general style of the church to be simpler, uh, to not be so celebratory of riches, uh, maybe to sell some of those things that are, well, not in the Vatican Museum, but you know what I mean, <laughs> the, all the gold stuff, um, uh, to kind of set an example that uh, we really are brothers and sisters, uh, maybe, maybe some people would start to be a little bit ashamed of how rich they are hmm. uh, and how much inequality there is. And I think the I, I think the I think it can only happen if the church sets the example, as well as preaches uh, about the fact that we all are <coughs> brothers and sisters. That nobody deserves to be rich. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all gifts from God. They are gifts to be shared, uh, and that we have a responsibility to uh, to see ourselves as part of the human community. I think the combination of words and actions can be very powerful. Um, it is not for the Pope to translate that into uh, what we should do about Social Security and the Earned Income Tax Credit in the United States. Uh, and best he stay out of uh, best he stay <laughs> out of that. But I do think it is a general stance, uh, as I say, in both words and actions uh, against inequality. For the poor and the vulnerable, that could actually make a difference in the, mm -hmm. uh, the perceptions that people may bring to the to public policy in individual nations or in the or in the international forums. Did you want to add something? I was home uh, the afternoon the the smoke rose, and I was watching. The whole world was watching, and uh, this uh, person who I didn't recognize came out. And they said his name, but I couldn't understand it. And then they said his name he had chosen was Francis. And I said to myself, this is really going to be interesting. <laughs> that is the first. I live and work in Washington. He says he chose the name Francis because Francis was a man about poverty, about peace, and about care for creation. If you were to list the things that have least attention in Washington, that are important, I think it would be poverty, peace, 
and care for creation. If those are the priorities of the church, I think uh, the biggest conflict with the culture, with politics, is not going to be on sexual matters. It's going to be about questions of social morality, about priorities, about who it gets left behind. If the measure of our lives is what we do for the least of these, if that becomes the standard of how we measure society, then this is going to be a whole different kind of discussion. And I think he will make lots of people uncomfortable uh, by who he is. And that's only right. My reading of Francis is he, he made everybody pretty uncomfortable. You mean I Francis of Assisi? Yes. Oh, he was severe. He used to ask, you know, uh, people to walk on his throat if after he said something that he thought was wrong. And when um, Saint, uh, Santa Chiara wanted to have dinner with him to speak about some business matters, the woman who founded the Poor Clares, he so, was so severe that he insisted they eat dinner and break bread in the middle of the road so that there would be many uh, witnesses and no temptation. So yes, he was a strict guy. <laughs> Do we want to have uh, some questions from the audience? Great. Hi. Hello. My name is Francisco. I'm from Argentina. <laughs> I, know, I know personally Jorge Mario. Bergoglio, now Pope Francis, that is his name. And my, my mother also is uh, founded, he, she founded a big Catholic NGO back in, in Argentina and Latin America. But my question is, we are very excited as Argentinians, and, and after what happened with Ratzinger, that as you said, he resigned. And these two, three weeks of this uncomfortable, what he's doing with this style, what do you think that he, if he can change the whole system, doing like very direct in, in the whole Vatican system, changing many of the social policies or the agenda in the world? Do you think that he can? change the system? Well, I mean, I think uh, he is such a magnet, uh, has such a magnetic personality. The danger here would be to get very unrealistic about what can be done. I mean, I think everything we've talked about is possible. Uh, none of it is sure. Uh, the Vatican is a very complicated place. Uh, I think he can change lots of it by what he simply says and does. But they basically, he's going to have to work within a system that's had a very long time. I, John Twenty-Third changed it by 80%. He probably could do the same. But I think we ought to be realistic about the challenges he faces, both structurally, governance, the nature of the problems, uh, that he faces, uh, he's, people think of the church as strong on vertical integration from top to bottom. The pope speaks and everything falls into place. It in fact internally is very pluralistic 
and at times, unfortunately, resistant to change. So he's got a job ahead of him. I think he's made a difference. He will make a difference. I think you have to wait a bit when you start talking about changing the whole system about what kind of problems are there and how he addresses them. My name is Holly Flynn. I'm a sophomore at the college, and I had the pleasure of working with John when he was here last semester. Um, my question is about some of the changes that you were talking about at the top that I'm really excited about, like um, more open attitudes toward women and a greater emphasis on the poor. How will Pope Francis translate those changes that are at the top into um, changes in attitudes among the, the traditionalist clergy on the ground around the world? Well, great to see you again, Holly. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you always ask hard questions. I hated that. The, um, I think a lot of it has to do with personnel. Yeah. I think it, what kind of bishops he chooses. Uh, I think it is the example he sets. Uh, on the question of will he change the system or will the system change him, I assume on these little matters of what he wears and where he stays and where he stands, and how he talks about himself. There are lots of people who say, uh, Francis, your holiness, we don't do it this way. And he says, well, we do now. Uh, so I have some confidence. This is a Jesuit provincial. He's a fairly tough guy. And he seems to have a mind uh, for, for what he's going to do. But I think example, personnel, and frankly, and I say this as somebody who has worked for the bishops uh, for a long time. Uh, the bishops are really important, they are not the church. So the question of how, how the church lives and how we uh, practice our faith and what is important and what is less important depends in a real sense of who we are and what we do as well as what he does and who he appoints. I think uh, we are very, the Roman Catholic Church is a very top-down institution in a very bottom-up world. I think what's interesting is we now have someone at the top who seems to have gospel values in abundance. I think now the question is, what's going to come from the bottom? Are some of us going to rally to him? And uh, will priests look at him and say, lots of people, lots of young priests say, I'm part of the John Paul II generation. I'm waiting for the Francis generation. And maybe a couple are in this room. I mean, part of it is we shouldn't stand back and watch other people try and make a difference. We, in fact, have to make a difference. Hello, good evening. My name is Alix. I'm a Kennedy School student. Um, I have a question regarding the media coverage of this election. Uh, before, during, and after. I was uh, really shocked to see that it was extremely extensive and also very deep in terms of information. So my question to you, and, and also mostly to you, is why is that? Why are suddenly journalists interested in an old institution, an institution that doesn't get grasped with, with the society today? Why was it everywhere during those last three weeks? What was so interesting in it? <laughs> That's for you. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think... We always cover the conclave very extensively. I would not claim that we always cover it uh, very intelligently or in great depth. I think a part of it is the beautiful imagery and the amazing backdrop and the um, 
kind of exoticism and the, you know, the mystery surrounding, you know, these people locked into the Sistine Chapel, you know, conclave under key. So um, there's there's that, but I think that then when we saw the choice, then there was actually I I agree I was surprised at the um, the reaction to him in the media as well as from the public in terms of um, actually looking at him in a way that for a couple of minutes there even stepped beyond the usual question of, but is he any different on gay marriage? Or, you know, the, a, a, as the others were saying, there is this very narrow focus on the sexual questions from the media. So, you know, I, I have been a little uh, heartened by seeing us get out of, get maybe slightly out of that in seeing, for example, his focus on simple lifestyle and on speaking so often about poverty. But, you know, I, we, we always, I mean, you know, because John Paul's pontificate was so long, we didn't have one for a long time. But the planning that went into the last conclave eight years ago, I mean, every media outlet in the world uh, was ready to, you know, to descend on Rome and to do that then. And, you know, uh, this, was such a good news story because it was so historic in terms, that was another factor in terms of Benedict leaving early, which was not a complete surprise given that he had signaled earlier that he would be very willing to resign if he thought he couldn't continue and do a good job, but it was still a heck of a news story, so. Sure. Hi, my name is Auden Lawrence, and I'm a freshman at the college, um, and this is for anyone on the panel. Um, there's been some discussion in the media about, I guess, the aging face of the, con of the membership of the Catholic Church, and I was just wondering if you thought this had any relevance to the um, choice of the new pope, and if there's anything that you think the Catholic Church needs to do, is there any reason to, um, I guess, appeal to younger members? appeal to younger people. Well, uh, one of the most surprising things about uh, the selection of Francis was his age. I mean, all the experts said, having had a pope who, I think in an act of great integrity and humility, said, I'm too old for this, what other leader can we name who gave up absolute power voluntarily? I mean, it was quite remarkable. But I, my sense was they were going to go for somebody younger and more energy. He may have the energy, but he has a lot of years. Uh, we're not going to get a very young pope. They don't want one that's going to stay forever. Uh, so I think the question is not one of age, but rather of attitude. And uh, there is something about a pastor who rides the bus and lives in an apartment and spends time on Holy Thursday with young people instead of with hierarchs. That appeals to me, but I think also appeals to my children. They're asking more questions now. The test will be whether this faith, my experience at Harvard this last fall was whether people are particularly religious or not. 
there is a real hunger for meaning and morality. Where in public life do we get the ethic of sacrifice, of concern for others, of caring for the weak, of caring for creation? And self-interest is not enough. And when you have a pope who says our lives are measured by how we care for the least of these, how we pursue a world without war, and how we care for the environment, I would think that is, in fact, an agenda that can appeal to younger people who have a thirst for morality and meaning. And uh, perhaps this old faith can appeal again to young people. We haven't talked very much about this is the fact that this is the first pope from Latin America. Yes. Uh, and the first pope from the global south rather than from, uh, rather than from, from Europe. And I think that is actually very important. I mean, that is where the church is. Uh, mm -hmm. The church is the church is growing in Latin America. The church is growing in Africa. Uh, the fact that the cardinals finally recognized that I think is actually pretty important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it will mean things for people in right. the south, and it means things for the whole church. We need to recognize that the whole church is important. We've got. I mean, if you come from this country. You just know there's a responsibility to be a religious voice in this country because of the impact of this country on the world. Uh, but at the same time, the fact of the matter is that in this still relatively new century, uh, the growth of the Catholic Church will be overwhelmingly in the Southern Hemisphere. And it is important to recognize that symbolically by choosing someone from there. I do think, though, that the, I think. In many ways, uh, people uh, come to religion through moral conviction, or they come to religion through the way religious traditions deal with serious moral problems, whether they're personal or social, whether they're at the domestic level or the international level. There are resources in the Catholic tradition to speak intelligently to a lot of problems. I do expect that this pope will have to produce his own social teaching. His instincts are strong in terms of care of others, but you've got to articulate that instinct in such a way that in a larger setting where people are trying to solve large problems, you, you speak with a certain kind of moral wisdom about complicated problems. And if you're able to do that, I think you can engage people who are already engaged in their life in dealing with public affairs, public policy, and the kinds of questions that come up at this school every day. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, I'm Jacob Moscona Skolnick. I'm a freshman at the college. And uh, my question basically boils down to what about this potential involvement with the dirty war in Argentina? Um, people have kind of come out of the woodwork saying some things about the Pope's history. Is this something we should care about? Should we investigate it further? Basically, as people who are kind of learning to understand this new Pope, trying to understand what's going to happen in the future, how should we respond um, to this, you know, part of his life uh, that, that's kind of being, you know, revealed? This is the turning point. Yes. Yeah. John, you were talking about well, this earlier. People are a product of their own histories. Uh, for John Paul II, a powerful part of his history was living with communist oppression. For uh, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, growing up in Germany and facing the specter of fascism was a powerful part of his history. I think 
again, this is projection on my part, having lived through that terrible time will shape him in terms of how, leader, how tough leadership is in difficult circumstances. My sense is there has been as, as soon as possible a quick review of who did what to whom when there. And the, the overall judgment was uh, not complicit, but not a hero. The story I remember is he called the priest who was to say mass for somebody who was in charge of the confinement of these two priests and said, you need to get set this weekend and I'm gonna take the mass. And he went and appealed for the freedom of these priests. Uh, that's not standing on the rooftops denouncing oppression and justice and denial of human rights and murder of innocents. That is also not blessing the dictatorship. I find it as one person with my own strengths and weaknesses. I've worked within a big institution that has its own moments of greatness and not so great. I think of the clerical sexual abuse scandal. I like the fact we have a leader who has lived through difficult times and struggled with what is the right thing to do in very difficult concrete situation. And at least as I read it, I'm no expert, uh, seems to have come through it without having been complicit in evil and probably learned an awful lot about what it is to be a leader in those times. I think the voice of Esquivel is important uh, because of the role he has played in his own country. And uh, I think he, I'm sure it was a summary judgment, but said he thought he dealt with it uh, not in public diplomacy, but in private diplomacy. Uh, I was in the job that John just stepped down from during that period of time. And I'd have to say on the whole, the Argentinian hierarchy dealt with uh, an authoritarian regime in a different way than the Brazilians and the Chileans did. The Brazilians and the Chileans went out front. They were like a shadow cabinet, literally, in uh, uh, Cardinal Silva in Chile was like a shadow cabinet to the government. That is to say, an alternative to the government. Uh, and they went out very publicly and took that position. The Argentinian bishops, to my knowledge, did not. Uh, I remember going to Argentina to uh, Mar del Plata, uh, which is a kind of a seacoast town, and we went in the winter for a meeting of the Inter-American Bishops Conference, and you got some sense of what it was like there. Uh, the bishop in Mar del Plata was a man named Peronio, we got there for a meeting of bishops from all over Latin America. The meeting was surrounded by police and or army. We were never quite sure. Uh, all over the town, uh, the writing on the walls was Peronio Communista. They were calling the bishop a communist. So when we were in this three-day meeting, he, uh, uh, Peronio asked to meet with the American bishops privately and it was the week after Easter, and he described for us how he had a friend in the government, and the government, the friend in the government called him up and said, they are gonna come and get you on Holy Thursday night. The the, the, it was not quite clear who was coming, whether it was the government or it was uh, some kind of militant group. 
said, they're going to come and get you. And he said that he, Peronio, and the nuns who took care of his house went to the chapel on Holy Thursday night and sat in the chapel all night long waiting for him to be taken. Well, he wasn't taken, but then they had to pull him out of Argentina and bring him to Rome. So the context in which these people lived did not allow for a great deal of freedom of movement. You could pick a strategy, a high-profile strategy. You needed all the bishops with you, or else they'd just pick you off. The Argentinian bishops did not choose a high-profile strategy, so he operated within that context, and the private diplomacy that Esquivel talked about was likely what he thought he could do. Last question. Hi, my name is Sylvia, and I'm a sophomore at the college. Um, you guys talked about the overall picture and the overall message of the church, which is the plight of the poor and that we need to overlook things or not really focus on things such as gay marriage and other social issues that our focus should be on that. But it seems that politically, at least in this country, um, people tend to focus in on those in their voting patterns as opposed to the overall picture of the church just helping out the poor and issues like that. How do you see the change in the leadership of the church affecting people's political convictions, if at all? Well, I'll, I'll take a, a stab at that. The, uh, there are certain things that are predictable, I think. Uh, one is that the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church are not going to be leaders in the sexual revolution. The, uh, there is a view in our tradition of the uses and abuses of human sexuality, which doesn't fit very well with contemporary culture. And while, you know, the question of how much priority, how that's expressed, uh, what form that takes in public policy is something we ought to debate. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I think our society is pretty screwed up on matters of human sexuality. I think uh, if you, I know I sound like Jerry Falwell, but if you watch media, if you listen to music, if you... Just open your eyes. I don't know anything about the, quote, hookup culture, and I don't want to. But it seems to me that the Roman Catholic Church is not the only one with a problem with human sexuality. There may be another side to this where we have turned something very important into something very trivial and uh, have lost its meaning. And whether the way the church talks about it and who talks about it for the church is the right response, but I, I don't think, Cardinal, Cardinal Dolan talks about the need to express what we believe more effectively. I think that's true. I also think we ought to listen more effectively. Uh, this is one area where celibacy is not an asset, in that uh, uh, if people were involved in family life and raising children and the rest, they might have a different approach on how to engage and persuade in this area. But my basic point is, one, don't expect uh, the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church to be in the vanguard. Although it's worth pointing out that I, as I understand the Pope Francis's position on gay marriage, it's virtually identical to President Obama's position 18 months ago, which is marriages between a man and a woman and there ought to be some consideration for civil unions. I mean, this has been moving pretty quick. Uh, but the, somewhere, 
out there in your own lives in our culture, we need to find a way to reconcile the competing visions of human sexuality in, in that lifts up the wholeness of the human person instead of just this one piece of who we are. Well, it might also be that, a, that an emphasis from the top on compassion and inclusion and care for all of God's children will lead to kind of maybe not a position to be in favor of gay marriage, though fighting it's kind of a losing battle, and I wish they wouldn't do that. Uh, but it might become more possible uh, to be inclusive in one's compassion and inclusive in one's community. And that would be a way, I would hope, of bringing together people who care about the family, people who care about unborn children, and people who care about the poor in one larger uh, way of, uh, of, of expressing uh, the sense of, of care, for, uh, care for the whole human community. So again, I think some of these style things could make a difference in, even in our politics, uh, in how Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner, both Catholics, uh, or the six guys, uh, the six folks on the Supreme Court, uh, kind of talk to each other about some of these issues. There may be a way that the divisions don't have to be so sharp. That brings okay. us back to really wild hopes. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, but it's, I it's also the case that whether you talk about the church's teaching on social justice or the church's teaching on human dignity and sexuality, uh, both of them have some hard messages in them. Uh, and I think that part of what has to happen is that you try to speak the truth as clearly as you can, and you keep your community welcoming of those who are persuaded and who are not persuaded, but are willing to be attracted by other things. So you can be, uh, you, uh, I mean, if you think of the questions of, of sexuality or the questions of social justice, you know, if the American bishops tomorrow came out and said, uh, you know, that they wanted to raise taxes by 20% on everybody from where, from the baseline of where it is now, there'd be a lot of people in the Catholic Church that would simply say, that doesn't speak for me. The question is, were you still, are they still welcome inside the church if they disagree with the teaching? And my approach is that one ought to speak the truth the best way one can, on social justice, on human life, on human sexuality, and keep the community open. Keep the community open for dialogue. Uh, there, is a, there is on both of these points the need for the church to listen before it speaks. When you get into the wisdom of marginal tax rates, when you get into the question of what you ought to do about entitlements, there is no special grace of the Holy Spirit that guides your teaching on that. So it is good to rely on reason, and it is good to keep the discussion going, so it is better to listen before you speak. It is better to have conclusions that have premises than conclusions that don't have any. And so I think on both of those counts, we ought to speak as well as we can, keep the community open, keep the dialogue going. 
Thank you all very much for coming, and please join me in thanking our panel.